talking about kind of the historical landscape of what was unfolding in and around the year 90 AD where the seven churches that are being addressed by Jesus through John in the form of a letter really is unfolding. There were three dominant challenges that these churches faced. They were working through issues of persecution and suffering and imprisonment. That's all kind of one category where simply because they are followers of Jesus Christ, their lives were being taken from them. Some are being exiled on islands and there is great struggle just because you were a follower of the Lord. They're dealing with issues of poverty, that because you are a Christ follower, the places that you need to go to build the meaningful relationships that would further your business, you're not going to those places. And out of your love for Christ and out of your honoring of His great name, your business, your life is in fact marked by poverty because the places that you refuse to go are the places that actually would further your business. And the third one really is this whole conversation of false teaching, that some of these churches were listening to individuals, prophets, who were adding things to what Jesus would say, and then other times they would just be saying the direct opposite of what Jesus was saying. And they're struggling to kind of work through what voice are we supposed to listen to and how are we to follow given all these other voices. And these are the three dominant struggles that these seven churches find themselves in. Last Sunday... We talked about how there are some of those churches that were persevering through those struggles. And Jesus comes to them in the form of this letter through John, through this incredible vision, and says incredible words of encouragement, incredible words of commendation over them as they continually pursued the Lord in, in the face of these particular struggles. Well, this morning is the flip side of that conversation where Jesus begins to address these churches and say some things into their lives that are difficult to hear. And you'll find very quickly that some of these churches were on the receiving end of the good things last week, and today, some of those same churches are going to be on the, the, the bad side, so to speak. And it really should remind us that any church can have at any moment in time wonderful things that they are about and that they're doing that God would speak words of praise over, and at the same time, in that same community of people, things that are unfolding that are not healthy, that are not helpful, and that God would speak firm words to help us move from where we are to where He wants us to be. On your table, there's a church name. And I want you to figure out what church you're at, because there's a moment where this is going to become very awkward, but it's on purpose. It's out of love for you when we work our way through this. Some of you last week, you're like, he didn't call my name. I'm like, well, this morning we're going to call your name. And, uh, and before, we, before we do that, let's just pray and ask God to uh, gently walk with us this morning as we work through what are some difficult words. Let's, let's pray together. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we uh, come before you this morning as people that, that have a heart for you, that long to serve and worship you, and in our foolishness, sometimes that can go sideways. And out of love that you have for us, out of grace that you have for us, you are willing to speak words of life into our hearts. And that can hurt sometimes. And God, I pray this morning that as we speak these words out of Revelation chapter 2 and 3, that we would be um, open, that we would hear what's being said. And it might, it might speak to us as a whole church. It might speak to us as an individual. And God, underneath of it all is this heart's desire in you to move us from a place that we ought not be into a place that's beautiful and life-giving for the glory of your name. 
We ask you to speak to us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. My grade five teacher was a lady named Mrs. Hart. Um, she was old then, and if she's still living, she is really old. But Mrs. Hart, in the first week of grade five, would explain to the class, these are my expectations for the class. This is what I'm inviting you into. And she would talk about how we would have to raise our hand if we needed to ask a question. She would talk about how if someone's speaking, that there's no cross-talking, that we would give kind of undivided attention to the one who was asking the question or speaking in the classroom. She would talk about being polite and kind. She would talk about how as young boys, uh, I think it's code for Philip, you should know there's a time and place to fool around and not fool around. So she would go through this for the first like several weeks, kind of creating the environment that she would love her class to function in. We came into the Thanksgiving break and we came back into the classroom post-Thanksgiving and as the class began, she began to call names. And she said, if you hear name, I'd like you to go stand at the back of the class for a moment. And my name was called in that. And my name was one of the earlier names called in that. And as the other names were called, I realized very quickly that this was not a good group that I should be connected with. <laughs> I realized very quickly that this is going to be an awkward moment for me. I realized that whatever Mrs. Hart was about to say, A, it was targeted at the 10 worst kids in her class in front of the other 20 kids in her class. She began to explain to us her struggle. She said to us, in light of who I am, in light of what I have set before you in the first month of school, if you keep acting the way that you're acting, if you keep goofing off, if you keep pulling pranks, if you keep talking back, if you keep showing up without your work done, then we may need to find another class for you. Or worse, some of you won't finish this year. Or even worse, you will not move on to grade six. Can you imagine that unfolding in a classroom now? And some of you are like, I'm old enough to remember when they did this. Well, that's really old. Like, we're not, we're not going to go into that space, but at least... This was a very real moment for me in Mrs. Hart's class. Holding this story in your mind, I want you to think of Jesus the teacher via John in this letter comes into the classroom of the seven churches and He begins calling your name. And in full view of the other seven churches, Jesus begins to speak to your church. So, in, just to really drive home this awkward moment, if you hear your name called, I would invite you to stand so we can all stare at you while we speak these words into your life. <laughs> so, if you are at the church of Ephesus, we would invite you to stand where you are. All right, everybody get a look. Jesus, through John says this to you two and to you four. And you're never coming back to church again. Um, <laughs> I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen. Repent. And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. To hear the heart of what's going on in this particular moment, we can turn to another space where Jesus spoke into this same dynamic in Matthew 24, 12. And we could spend a whole sermon talking to this particular group of people. But this warning to this group, this church at Ephesus, is simply this. 
because of the world and how evil it is, because of the sin that you see, because of all the brokenness that's unfolding all the time around you, your love for the people that I'm trying to redeem, your love for them has grown cold. You have devolved church into being nothing more than a Bible study for just Christians, and your love for the lost has just stopped. And I hold this against you. That you have turned inward and all you do is want to hang out with one another. All you do is want to gather and do studies and studies and pray thinking that you're accomplishing the work of the Gospel. And you're not. And he says, remember what you used to do for these people. Remember what you used to do for the people who worshipped at the altar of Zeus and Aphrodite. Remember what you used to do to love and care for the sick, the ones who needed help, for the ones who were lost and broken. Do you remember these things? Consider how far you have fallen. Do the things that you used to do for them, and literally, or else, I will take the lampstand from you. Thank you for being good sports. You guys can have a seat. If you're at Pergama or Thyatira, you're next. I'd invite you to stand where you are. And this gets progressively worse, by the way. (laughs) I hold a few things against, and there's a lot of you. There are some of you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they would eat food that was sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the the teachings of the Nicolaitans. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teachings, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. We don't want to spend a lot of time talking to this particular church because we spent a lot of time last week talking about churches and people who claim to be a follower of Christ that added things in, particularly as it, rated, uh, as it was connected to God's design for sexuality by people who claim to follow Him. And in this moment, he's coming down hard on these two churches to say, you are in a very worrisome place. That you're listening to voices that you not ought listen to. And it's whether you believe it or realize it or not, your heart is drifting away from me. You imagine being alive in this time place and the elders of a church begin reading this and you're aware of how these words are falling on other churches. You guys can have a seat and we'd ask Sardis if you guys would stand up. And Jesus says to you, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains, and it is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished. To help you hear the heart issue of what's unfolding in the church at Sardis. And this church at Sardis has been present then, and it's true right down to churches in our city this morning. There are people, there are churches, there are communities of faith who they do come to know the Lord, who study the Scriptures well, who go to Bible study, who serve and work for the sake of the Gospel that through a period of 30-40 years, they have amassed this incredible reputation of being someone who loves the Lord, 
of being someone who knows the Scriptures, of being someone who is a true follower of Jesus Christ, and then they turn 55 and 60. And they quietly begin to check out. And they want to essentially coast their way to the finish line. Jesus comes to this community of faith at Sardis and says this, I know your deeds. You're not fooling anybody. You have an incredible reputation of being this and that. But make no mistake, you're dead. Wake up, for I find your deeds unfinished. You guys can have a seat in the church of Laodicea. We have saved the best for last. Again, Jesus, through John, says, I know your deeds. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, you are neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, I've acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. It's a Hallmark card right there, that, that line. To help you hear the heart of this issue that Jesus is speaking into, you find the same warning given to God's people literally several thousand years before when Moses is standing before the Israelites and they're about to go into the promised land and he says to them, when you have eaten and when you're satisfied, you will praise the Lord your God for the good land He has given you, but be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. Otherwise, when you eat and you are satisfied, when you build fine houses and when you settle down and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God. You may say to yourself, my power and my strength, the things of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Jesus here in the Old Testament and now in the New Testament to the church at Laodicea is speaking to the same dynamic. When all that you have increase, when your bank accounts get larger, when you move from that small bungalow to a larger rancher, to a larger two-double two garage car, car, to that larger house, to a better job, and as all that you do continues to seem to go up and to the right, and it's blessed upon blessed upon blessed, you begin to believe a lie that says you're pretty good. That you're the one who is responsible for all of this. And we begin to drift away from the Lord, and this is what's happening in Laodicea. And God comes to them in firm words to say, I don't know where to even put you. You're not hot or cold. Like you're, you're in a category that's so unique that there isn't a category for you. And I'm about to spit you out of my mouth because you're not this or this. I wish that you were all in against me or all in for me, but you're in this weird space of delusionment on what you think you are. You're not wealthy, you're not rich, you're not good, you're not anything other than poor, pitiful, naked, and blind. You guys can have a seat. Thank you for playing. And we're really not this rough if you're here for the first time this morning. I want you to imagine sitting in a church meeting, whether you're at Ephesus or Sardis or Thyatira, and we have gathered with great excitement because we have a letter from our good friend John, the one that we know that has been exiled on the island of Patmos. And we're anxious to hear from him and hear how he's doing and 
what animals has he named and kind of the, the Tom Hanks castaway, like what kind of, what Wilson have you created for yourself? And instead of finding that kind of language, John says, oh, no, no, just a second, I had, I had a vision from Jesus and he needs to say some things into some churches and you need to hear this well. And in real time, there is a report card given to all the churches where Ephesus is hearing about Sardis, where Sardis is hearing about Laodicea, where Thyatira is hearing about Pergamum. It's one big cyclical teaching moment for these seven churches. And if you're here this morning, you're like, my name didn't get called. That's a good thing. However, you're fully aware that your name could be called. And that, in a weird way, encourages you to keep going because obviously you're not in the space where Jesus needs to speak those firm words into your life. It's in this moment where Jesus, this great and perfect teacher slash judge, stands over these seven churches. And He's saying to them, in light of who I am, in light of all that I've invited you into, in light of all that I've done for you, in light of the Gospel where I have redeemed you through my life and through my death and through my, my resurrection and ascension and this incredible community of people that I've called to Myself, in light of all of these things, I find some of you lacking. I, saw, I find some of you moving away from the things that matter. I find some of you not paying attention. And if you stay here, it doesn't end well for you. And Jesus speaks to the church at Ephesus, which is true of all of them, that if you remain here, I will remove your lampstand, which is essentially, I will take from this town the presence of a Gospel church. I will take from this town a community that is formed by and through My grace to tell this town about who I am. I will take this from this particular place. Make no mistake what this moment is. This is a moment where it is grace upon grace for our life. When Mrs. Hart asked us to go stand at the back of the classroom, this is a picture of her grace and love for me, her student. Given all that she had laid out in week one, some of us were lacking, and she wanted to send a clear message to us out of her love and care for me, her student, you need to know that if you stay on the course that you're on, I might see you again next year. This is grace from Mrs. Hart to me, a grade 5 student. Please hear what I'm saying. This is the same dynamic that's unfolding with these churches where God has called people to Himself and we are called followers of Jesus Christ. And in Revelation 1, there's this picture as Jesus kind of like walks and strolls through the seven lampstands, these seven churches in this now what we call Turkey. And He says to them, given all that I have invited you into, given all that I've done for you, I find some of you lacking. And that of love and care for you, my people, my churches. That if you stay on this course you're on, you're not going to make it. This is incredibly awkward moment for these seven churches. And to finish our time together this morning, I want to talk about some qualities of who Jesus is or who God is that we can't ever forget as we work our way through this book of the Bible. We can't ever forget that God does in fact discipline the ones He loves. We can't ever forget that repentance is the goal. And we can't ever forget that God will follow through with what He says. God disciplines the ones in whom He loves. This is in Revelation 3.19. And listen, I want to be clear for you. Clear for you this morning. This is Jesus talking to a man-woman 
who has claimed to follow him and their hearts have been formed by him. We have four children and I discipline my kids more than your kids because I love my kids more than your kids. It's the same dynamic where God disciplines His sons and daughters. This is not the outside world. This is not the lost. This is the men and women who have claimed to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And God, out of love, disciplines and rebukes these ones because He loves them. We live in a world, and I still don't quite understand why, but anything to do with rebuke and discipline is deemed a bad thing, a negative thing, and contributes in negative ways into our lives. And yet, what I find fascinating is that there have been so many studies done that we know that is in fact the backbone to raising a healthy human being. It is a plumber who is a Red Seal plumber, has been doing it for 40 years, working with a young guy, a young girl, and they don't know what they're doing yet. And when the plumber comes along and says, no, this isn't how we do this, this is how we do this, that is in a wonderful way a space of rebuke and discipline that will make the young one better as they grow. It's a coach that is recognizing bad habits in that athlete's life. And the coach says, if you keep doing this, you're never going to become the player that you can be given all the skills that you have. It's an accountant working with someone who's in training saying, this isn't how we do the books. This is how mistakes are made. This is how that if you keep going in this road, that significant mistakes will be made that might cost you jail time. In every discipline of life, there is someone who is older, wiser, and smarter who's been doing it a long time, and they are training up younger people, and that training is filled with rebuke and discipline all the way through it. And when we move this conversation over into our relationship with God, we have formed a narrative that God is just happy all the time. Well, I don't know what Bible you're reading because there's spaces where God isn't happy all the time with His followers. There are real spaces where God is frustrated with His sons and daughters. Call it the bulk of the Old Testament. Call it Revelation 2 and 3. And here's a moment where God the Father, the God who is perfect, the One who judges and sees all things, begins to speak into our lives, and we sometimes wonder, is this, is this true? That God would say such things to me? Y- y- yes. Out of love, yes. And when God rebukes and disciplines, there is a point to it. And this is where this changes often, and why we sometimes struggle with this picture of God. His goal for you is, in fact, repentance. It's not just to be angry and throw lightning bolts and be that. It's I'm I'm telling you something in the hopes that you would turn from the direction that you're headed. When you read through Revelation 2 and 3, we have to see woven into the text this dynamic of this is not the final report card over these churches' lives. This is like kind of like the midterm report card that you get as parents, and you read in the notes like additional comments. Philip needs to stop being a class clown. Philip needs to stop talking to his friends when I'm trying to teach. Philip needs to. And then my mom reads this. And I'm like, well, my teacher's lying. And my mom's like, "Mm, your teacher's right. You're wrong. Go to your room. Like, there's a very real progression that unfolded in our home often. And here, the report card is given. And the additional comments are, I find some of you lacking. And my hope and my goal for you, my people, is that you would move away from this. And the final report card would read differently. 
We see this language woven in where God says to Ephesus, repent and do the things you did at first. To Pergamum, He says, just flat out repent and turn around. To Thyatira, He says to them, I've given her time to repent. To Sardis, He says, wake up. Strengthen what remains. Because what you have that's left is about to die. Wake up and turn this ship around. Laodicea, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears me knocking at the door and they open it, I will come in and live with them and them with me. There's this language of, I find you lacking, I want you to turn around because this is my goal for you. It's curious, whenever you read through Revelation 2 and 3, at the end of every single one of the seven churches, we see the heart of God on full display where He says to Ephesus, these are the good things about you. I find these things still lacking about you. And then it goes on, but to the one who is victorious. And then it goes to Laodicea. He says, like, I, these are good things. These are the bad things. But to the one who is victorious. This is a ref, uh, this refrain all the way through chapter 2 and 3 to every church. My goal, my hope, my heart for you is that you would in fact be victorious. That you would pursue me through every day of your life so that you can participate in the fullness of all that I have in store for you. I find some of you lacking right now, but repent so that you can land in this place of being a victor. We can't ever forget this, and this is the part that some of you I know are going to struggle with as we work through this particular book. God follows through with His words. My teacher, Mrs. Hart, would have failed me if I did not hear what she was saying. She would have failed me. It was like kind of the pre-world of like everybody passes even though they shouldn't pass. It was like I'm that old now. God follows through with His words. And we don't know what happened to all of these churches. We know that they get this letter from Jesus through John. We know they get it. We know they read it. We know that there's this incredible teaching moment for these seven churches. But we don't know if they turn around. I'm going to invite Dana and team back because they're going to lead us in a song in a moment. But as they're coming, uh, but we do know a little bit about Ephesus. This church last week, they were on the receiving end of good words from God. That I find this in your favor. And he praises them for these things. And then he comes into this week and says, but I find it lacking in this area that you have moved away from the things that you did at first, that you've fallen away from these things. And when we track through Ephesus, Ephesus was like the church that everybody wanted to be a part of. You can read about it in Acts 18-20. through This is where Paul planted and spent a lot of his time there. These were the heavyweights of the preachers where Apollos preached there, Priscilla preached there. This is where amazing things unfolded in this particular city. This is where great miracles happened where there were individuals who touched the handkerchief of Paul and they were healed. This is where people who were enslaved to sorcery and all kinds of things, they were freed from demons. They were healed from physical ailments. Ephesus was this epicenter of God activity. My favorite story actually from Acts is here. This is how well known Paul is and the activity of God through his life where there's this moment where there's a gentleman trying to cast out demons. 
And the demons speak to Paul, and, or speak to this guy, and they're like, we know who Jesus is. We've heard of Paul, but who are you? This is a place where the activity of God is on full display for years. And then in 90 AD, they get this letter that reads, you have forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. And if you do not repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand. This church stopped loving the people in whom God had come to save. This church stopped serving the poor. This church stopped ministering to the broken. This church stopped welcoming in those that were different from them. And they huddled together, thinking they were amazing, not realizing that the death spiral had begun. In my reading this week, Ephesus, a gospel church, disappeared in the 6th century. That if you went and Googled this little town called Selkirk, Turkey, there is no church there. Nothing. There's a giant Catholic basilica that's a museum. It's beautiful. That was built in the 4th century. It is fascinating to me that God says through His Son to this church, if you don't stop doing this, I will take from you your lampstand. I will take from you the work of the Gospel. And I will give it to someone else because you're not doing it. And we know from history that the church in Ephesus disappeared around the 6th century. That's a long time. There is not a gospel witness there this day. God has love and grace for us to speak firm words into our life, whether that's a collective church or whether that's us, an individual. The goal behind it is I want you to be victorious. I want you to finish this race. And my favorite line of last week, and it just captivated me, where Jesus says to one of the churches, He says, listen, if you finish well, if you run all the way through, I will get you to sit on My throne at My right hand like I sat on My Father's throne at His right hand. This is My heart for you. This is what I long for, but I will follow through with My words over your life. We, we, can't, we can't reduce this to silly games. We can begin a drift that's significant. And I love the fact that God loves us enough to say, just a minute now, you're headed in a place that brings you suffering and death. May we be a people, a church, family, that continually is willing to hear firm words into our life, that we would stay the course, that we would be victorious with Him in the end. Would you pray with me? Our gracious and heavenly Father, I love the fact that You are willing to go there and have the firm conversation with us, Your people. 
I love the fact that You love me, us, enough that You would come to us and say, look at me. Look right into my eyes. If you keep doing this, it ends bad for your life. Turn around. Remember the things that you did at the beginning. Look at how far you have fallen. Turn around while there's still life in you. Turn around so that I don't take the lampstand from you. Turn around so that you would declare my incredible name throughout the ages. So that whether we die in this life or you return first, that we run through the finish line. Not coasting and built up on great reputations. Not adding things into the Gospel that our world so desperately would love us to add into. That we would forever see the vulnerable and the poor and the broken. That we would understand deeply that You have come into the world to seek and save the lost. That we would be a people that we push into these things year after year after year after year and, and never give in to the temptation of let's just hang out with Christian friends and call it a day. For the glory of Your name and the work of the Gospel, May we hear your words often and regularly. In your name we pray. Amen.